APUS. American Public University System is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to the School of Arts and Humanities at American Public University System. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today at The Everyday Scholar, we are talking to Dr. Wally Boston, President Emeritus at American Public University System. And today we're talking about COVID-19 and school reopenings in the fall of 2020. Welcome, Wally. Uh, welcome. I'm, I'm glad to be here, Bjorn. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Um, with so much going on with COVID-19, the pandemic that, of course, has hit the world for months and months now, school reopenings is a huge topic. And school reopenings touches so many different facets of both the society and the economy and is politically driven. So I'm going to jump into the first question is, how is COVID-19 disrupting higher education? Wow. It's a great question. And I've published more than a few blog articles on it. So I guess I'll start with last spring in May, Timothy White, who I happen to know, he's chancellor of the Cal State University System, announced that beginning this fall, all of the Cal State universities, I think approximately 28, would be online and with a few notable exceptions for a couple of lab courses here or there. But at the time, he Cal State and under his leadership, they were the first to make such an announcement that they didn't believe that we'd be in a situation to allow them to return to campus safely. I think he was roundly criticized. But then a couple of weeks later, a few schools up in Massachusetts indicated that they were going to be mostly online with a few people on campus. And then we saw a lot of announcements from institutions. Well, we're going to make our decision later this summer. We'll make it around July 1st, July 5th. And I think there was a tracker in the Chronicle of Higher Education that was tracking the announcements. And prior to the 1st of July, the majority of schools were planning on coming back, returning to campus. After the 1st of July, trying to think at the exact break point, I think it was closer to the end of the month, the Chronicle published an article saying that it appears right now we're at 50-50. 50% of the institutions have said they're coming back and or, or have not said anything at all, just uh, leaving people to speculate that they were coming back. And 50% of announced are going to be mostly online for the fall. It's interesting because as the incidents flared back up in primarily southern states so far, like California as a Western state would be included in the group of where the flare-ups occurred, Florida, Texas, Georgia, et cetera. I said, this is crazy. These states with the flare-ups are not even in session from a college perspective. So when we get back to campus, this could be a disaster. Then there was an article published in the online journal of the American Medical Association by a Yale PhD in public health faculty member there and two Harvard Medical School MDs, where they put together a simulation for a prototype 5,000 student campus where 5,000 students are attending classes on campus. All of them are pre-screened. However, of the 5,000, 4,990 are clean, no negative with, with no incidents, and, and 10 were asymptomatic and the test results did not pick up the fact that they actually had COVID. And so they ran scenarios on how frequently you would have to test the entire student population during 
an 80-day short semester because a lot of schools said, hey, we're going to start early and we're going to end at Thanksgiving because we're not going to bring back our students after Thanksgiving if they've gone all, all over the country and expose everybody to the COVID virus. So they said, we'll assume an 80-day semester that most schools are trying to shorten this. And the results were crazy. It basically said that you needed to test the entire population every two days in order to maintain a safe situation. And it also assumed that there was no external influence, as in people visiting the campus, that could interfere and expose people to the viruses. You and I were college students at one time, you more recently than me, uh, but I can still remember my, my days of living on campus and social events that happened on weekends. You know, you had a difficult major and couldn't get out during the week and college students are going to be college students. I read that study and I said, oh, this to me is the evidence here that indicates that most schools will be online this fall. And I felt like it would tip. Interestingly, though, there are a number of schools that have not tipped and some large schools. And, and I view that as either an economic reason because they earn a lot of room and board fees or they're a, a university that is in three of the power five conferences that have not yet abandoned their opportunity to play football this fall. So as of yesterday, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have announced that they're not playing football, but the Big 12 the ACC and the SEC have said, we think we're going to play football. Our medical advisors have told us it's safe to play football. So I actually believe that they probably could play football safely if they had an experiment like the NBA is doing where you get in a bubble. And all I believe most of the Power Five conferences had already announced that they were only going to play league members and they were going to stop playing non-conference opponents. But I really think you can't take these football players who are college students and expose them to other students and then allow them unguardedly to leave their dorm room or their off-campus apartment for a social event and not expect that there's going to be infections. I have twin daughters who are currently in college. They're both athletes. And they you know, were telling me all summer long that because athletes were allowed to return to campus June one per the NCAA rules for practice and training. And they were back on campus with their fellow athletes and just telling me about the number of people who were testing positive. Fortunately, neither of my daughters, they've been pretty good about keeping to themselves and keeping a very narrow group of friends who they see. But I think given the nature of colleges and given that study on the simulation from the folks at Harvard and Yale, I think this fall is going to be mostly online again. And that simulation is fascinating because it really highlights the fluid nature, I think, of humans, number one, and college students. College students, really, if you go to a campus, the idea is to interact with people, to talk to new people, to be exposed to different ideas. And that just highlights that fact. Now, I'm going to jump to the next question, which that simulation also kind of, uh, kind of demonstrates it. What are the health risks of COVID to students and to teachers and staff. So from the CDC, most recent as of today, which is mid-August, cases by age group. So in the typical college range, 18 to 29, it doesn't break it down to 18 to say typical 23-year-olds or so, about 21.7% of all COVID cases are in that age range. So 
what are the risks for students going back? But more importantly, what are the risks for the teachers and staff whom for the ages of 50 to 64, again, that's the second riskiest category of getting COVID. And then if you jump up to the death rate by age group, the 18 to 29-year-old is 0.5%. So very negligible. But then for the 50 to 64-year-olds are 15.6%, which is exponentially more than the students. And so you're significantly putting your teachers, your staff, your administrators at risk. If, say, the average age of the college teacher and college staff member is around 49. That's almost at that age group that is at risk. And then if you jump up to the older, say, professors who are 65 to 74, the death rates for that age group jump up to 21%. And to me, those are, of course, frightful stats because, again, for younger people, the stats are very small, but they just get so high as you get older. I admire the colleges and universities that stated early on that if a faculty member or instructor had any concerns about teaching in person, that they would not have to. And that was pretty noble of those institutions. And and I can tell you that both of my daughters have substantially all of their classes will be online this fall because of their institutions allowing faculty members to do that even though they're on campus, I think starting this week for both of them, officially, because they happen to attend big time football schools, but they're gonna be online because of either selecting a couple of online classes previously because they're athletes and that accommodates their travel schedule. And the fact that they're face-to-face classes, which they enjoy, the instructors opted to say, you know what, I'm teaching online this fall. So one daughter, all of her classes are online. The other daughter has online for half of her classes, and then the other ones are where they've cut the class size and half the class goes one day of the week and the rest of the class is online and the other half goes another day of the week and the rest of the class is online. But this is a situation at two schools that that say we're back in business and we're playing football. I think that when you really look at older faculty and staff members, it's a huge concern. I know that where I spend my time, I I split my time between Maryland and, and Texas I don't uh, wantonly go out without a mask in either location. If I go to a restaurant, I try to sit outside so I don't have to deal with the HVAC. I follow the rules and wear my mask until the moment that I'm seated. And in some cases, while I'm waiting, I keep my mask on. I just, I wait until I get my food and food and drink before I, I, I take the mask off because I'm looking around and maybe it doesn't quite look like it's six feet for the, you know, one table to the other table. I just can't imagine being in a situation where you're forced to teach a face-to-face class and you have a lot of young people and you hear stories about, you know, this fraternity had a party that, you know, this thing happened. And you don't, you don't know of anybody in that group that may have attended that event over the weekend. And you also don't know, I mean, in fact, I would say it's probably pretty safe to think that many of the colleges that are announcing returning to an in-person class this fall have done anything with the HVAC. For the most part, campuses have old buildings, which means they have old HVAC. From what I understand with some of the techniques on installing these much more pure filters and UV systems to destroy the virus, that you can really only do that with newer systems and not the older systems. So I'm a part-time faculty member with our institution. And I would tell you that if 
I had to teach face to face, uh, given the fact that I'm 66 years old, I'd probably say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the online option this fall, which the good news is we've been doing online for, you know, 25 years now. So that's, that's okay. Yeah. And I get it. Even if I was, and I haven't taught in person in a while at say the local colleges I'm in Arizona, I would hesitate to go and teach a course and just say, you know, I'll just do online <laughs> and, you know, sit it out. And even, you know, the local community colleges here in Arizona have opted for all online for the fall, but ASU, Arizona State University, is still, you know, bringing some people back. And so that transitions to the next question is, what are some additional ethical issues associated with higher education and COVID? There's obviously the health issues, but how about the almost laser-focused idea of we need football? I would go into, I had a whole series of articles (laughs) years ago where I completely wrote against having semi-pro football in college. Most colleges should take the University of Chicago model, have a D3 football team. (laughs) The focus is education. You don't need big-time football at my alma mater, University of Arizona, which is one of the more, (laughs) how do I say this, least successful Pac-12 teams out there. Yet they still spend millions of dollars on football. And there's ways you could split off the teams. You could have it actually semi-pro versus it actually being education. But when there's such a focus on what I would say external educational activities, how ethical is it to really focus and push for that? Great question. And I think it crosses a line between what do you consider an ethical violation when the truth is quite evident. All you have to do is Google football revenues for Power Five conference universities. And you can find, and excuse me, an article that was written about a year ago, maybe not quite a year ago, but an article that was written when someone was contemplating the financial impact. And there's about 4.1 billion in revenues between TV and attendance at the stadium and all of the food and beverage and t-shirts and stuff like that. And they said if, you know, you were canceled for some reason that uh, you could probably cancel about uh, out of of the 4.1 billion revenue impact, you could probably recover about 735 million in expenses, but that the bottom line impact to 60 or so colleges that form the Power Five would be about 3.4 billion. That's a lot of money. But I guess where I'm going is the data is out there for every school. There's a list. I could be wrong on this, but I believe Texas A&M had the highest revenue for uh, sports. And you might imagine other schools that are out there like Alabama and Clemson and Michigan and Ohio State. And, you know, they're probably all up in the top 10 because of their football prowess. So all anyone has to do is to understand what the impact is of canceling the football season is, is just do that Google and you'll get that information even if you have to search around for it for your individual school. So the fact that so many of these schools with the big time football programs are saying we're waiting and they don't mention it, is that an ethical lapse? Well, I'm guessing that their president says everybody knows what impact this would be. My feeling about ethics, which I think you know, the important thing is to communicate. That's actually your area of ex- expertise, communication. <laughs> In this particular situation, I think it would have been best for 
college presidents from these schools, just to be totally honest and say, look, the conference generally, by the way, most of the voting members of the conferences are the presidents. So when the Big Ten decided to pull out, it was because of a vote of the Big Ten presidents saying, we're shutting down for the season. So the presidents are very aware of the revenue impact. To me, a president who happens to be a voting member says, look, you know, I've talked to the other presidents because we're all board members of the, I'll use the ACC as an example. We're all board members and we're going to make this decision. And, you know, we're, we're getting advice from our medical advisors that indicate that our football teams can play and not suffer any crazy coronavirus impact. And to some extent, I think that part is, is, is all true. And I think the NBA is proving it. There are very few bubble cases of players coming down with, I mean, there are cases, but they've been able to contain it because of what they're doing down with Disney. But given the nature of college campuses, I, I, I mean, I think Tim White at Cal State, when, when he canceled, they, all the Cal State schools basically weren't playing in their league. Now, most part, uh, most of them are not big time athletic powerhouses, but I think there are a couple of members, Cal States, that participate in some of the bigger conferences. So he made a decision that that impacted revenues. And although some people say it, it wasn't that big of an impact, so he was able to make it. But nonetheless, he certainly was more than transparent. And I think transparency from an ethical perspective, if you're transparent, if I was, I'll use my undergrad alma mater, I was Duke's president, I'd say, look, we're not known for football as much as we're known for basketball, but we're an ACC school. So we, we have football revenues that come in here. And so we're going to be a good member of the ACC and, and vote to do what's best for the ACC, as long as our advisors tell us it's safe. But I, I, it, it'll be interesting. I, I, I think the three big conferences who still say we're, they're going to play football, if they don't find a way to isolate their players socially, I give it four weeks, <laughs> you know, max. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. And, you know, what you said about the NBA bubble is a really fascinating experiment and it's working. Of course, these players are professional and they're adults, 22 plus generally. (laughs) Um, And it's hard to see how that would work for college football because these are student athletes where their number one obligation should be to their studies, unless you go to a football school in which they're really there to do football get a little education and then try to make it to the NFL. Or like you said at Duke, go basketball and then jump up to the NBA. And so it's really hard to imagine uh, the sheer cost on institutions would be too much to create a football bubble for college, it seems. And what you said about communication is absolutely perfect. I mean, the number one thing, whenever there is something going on and which I think has been very difficult in contemporary U.S. political environment is good communication. I'll say good communication is one of the hardest things humans do. So no matter what, it's extremely difficult. And then you get a somewhat fractured political environment, and it's that much harder. No, excellent, excellent comments. I do have one thing that I'd like to add. So there's another little ethical dilemma. I mean, I think get into ethics from a learning perspective and maybe even a research perspective, there's these conundrums that you have and you go, well, is this legit or or not legit? So in fairness to the athletic conferences, the Power Five, all of them announced pretty early on that if an athlete felt unsafe because of COVID, that they could announce that, not play, the school would not take away that scholarship. So I applaud them for that. At the same time, having daughters who are athletes, they made the remark that 
you know, their friends who are football players, no one wanted to be the first one to make that decision. You didn't want to be criticized in practice after you made that decision. You weren't going to do it. Oh, look at so-and-so. What a sissy or, or you know, that's a, that's, that's a word from my generation. I don't know what they use today's generation for, for these words. But those football athletes aren't electing, with a few exceptions, to make that decision. I guess it's a conundrum. So, yes, the league offered a great opportunity. If you don't want to play, you don't feel safe, you don't have to, and you keep your scholarship. And at the same time, call it peer pressure, call it uh, whatever, they're not electing to do that. And that totally makes sense, especially at a younger age, say 18 to 20 something. Uh, there'd be a lot of social pressure, especially for males. Whatever social construct you want to put on for gender, <laughs> there is a lot of pressure for males to, to actively demonstrate their masculinity or however you might want to describe it, especially in the most masculine, putting that in quotes, of sports, football. Right. The interesting part, though, is when you look at the $4.1 billion in revenues that relates to big-time football and the fact that there's only roughly $750 million of cost, that excess covers almost all the other sports, except basketball. Although it covers basketball, a lot of schools, there's the way the basketball contract works. It's not, I mean, the NCAA controls that versus uh, the Power Five, which control football. So which is why the NCAA canceled their championships for Division Two and Division Three, and said, we're just going to leave Division One up to the Power Five. <laughs> but because those monies come in and cover all these non-revenue sports, I'd actually not be in favor of that because I think having teams in college is great. And you have this conundrum, though, that you know the big money sports really drive a lot of decisions that you make. And I think probably a lot of presidents just have to say it's the evil they have to live with if they're getting money from two big sources, football and basketball, that there's 650 other athletes in sports that you probably wouldn't have a lot of those teams if you didn't have the excess coming in. So no, absolutely wonderful comments. And today we're talking to Dr. Wally Boston here at the Everyday Scholar, and we'll be right back. At American Public University, we believe quality education must be more affordable. That's why, as a leader in online higher education, we focus on minimizing costs and maximizing return on learner investment. And we believe higher education must be more accessible. So our online programs start every month. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we are back with Dr. Wally Boston here at The Everyday Scholar. And I'll jump into the last question. And some analysts have predicted that anywhere from 10 to 20% of all higher education institutions might fail by fall of 2021. How did we get here? How did higher education get to a point to where a good number of institutions might fail? Well, the basis for this precedes coronavirus, COVID-19. In January, my dissertation chair from the University of Pennsylvania, Bob Zemsky, Robert Zemsky, and two colleagues published a book called The College Stress Test. And the impetus for that book was they had proposed to Johns Hopkins Press, a, a group that they periodically write books for, to write a book about law schools. Law schools have seen huge declines in enrollment over the past five or six years, primarily because the price to attend law school got to the point where the average law school graduate came out of law school with $125,000 in debt, and more than half of them couldn't get jobs as attorneys. We had expanded our law school enrollments nationwide and also expanded 
the tuition to the point that everybody thought that, wow, there's more than enough employment to go around at six-figure salaries for lawyers. And that just didn't happen. You know, the top 10 law schools would graduate attorneys who could get jobs with the big firms that would pay that kind of money, but, but no one else. They wanted to write the book about law schools. And the director of the press said, why don't you write it about all colleges? And so they said, okay. And using data from iPads and their, their own understanding, and Professor Zemsky is someone who writes about the financial models of colleges and universities all the time. He's been, he's been doing it for years. So they developed the college stress test. And as they were nearing publication, the news hit back in November of 19 that a new firm, a higher ed consulting firm, was getting ready to publish a list of schools that were in imminent danger of going under based upon their assessment of publicly available metrics. And uh, they were doing this as a project in concert with Inside Higher Ed. Inside Higher Ed was going to have a series of articles on it. And basically, uh, they and Inside Higher Ed were threatened to be sued by several of the schools that were going to be on that list. They said, you can't do this. You put our name on a list of schools that are going to go under, and you're going to sink us. We're dependent on tuition, and people are going to say, well, I'm not going there. They're going to go under. So Professor Zemsky, Bob Zemsky, and his colleagues opted to in their book, use some examples where they'd gotten permission from the institutions, but publish the algorithm for how you could access the data to calculate for your own institution what your at-risk factor was. Now, interestingly enough, post-COVID and just two or three weeks ago, maybe not even three, maybe just in the last two weeks, the Heckinger Report took the time to utilize the Zemsky algorithm that they published in the college stress test and now have a data set for 2,600 public and private nonprofit institutions that you can look up. You can go to that data set and actually type in any name and you can see what the risk factors are. Are they at risk for any of the four major factors that Zemsky looks at? But essentially why we are here precedes COVID. And why we were here is because for the last 30 years, Colleges just kept increasing tuition at a rate that was higher than the increase in the CPI. My senior year at Duke, I was room board, tuition, everything, and it was under $4,000 for that year. Now, granted, that was in the late 70s, but I still have the registration book that lists all the fees and everything. And now it's that, that same number for similar thing at Duke is, is in the 70s. I'm, as in like 75,000, 76,000. And the cause of it, I think there was a period of time when we were expanding the children of the baby boomers and we had ratings and everybody wanted their children to go to the top schools. And so top schools were able to increase their tuition. And then the ones that weren't top schools aspired to be top schools. So they were putting in the climbing walls and the amazing dormitories and everything else to attract people, but also they were jacking up the tuition for that experience. So if you take the tuition rates that colleges had in the 70s, tuition room aboard and compare, we should be at about half or maybe even less of, of where we are today. The colleges really built a business model that for many of them was tuition dependent. But when they got to a point where 
the tuition was really too high, then in some cases they started discounting their tuition. So you hear about tuition discounting. And a few years ago, the red flags were out there by people who follow higher ed. And they said, you know, the average tuition discount rate, I, I can remember this very vividly, probably 15 years ago, the average tuition discount rate was 42 or 43%. They said, we're approaching 50%. Once we get past 50%, it's not good. Well, we're past 50%. Some colleges have close to a 70% discount rate. That means you, you are so sensitive to enrollment fluctuations that if you don't hit your enrollment target and you have a fixed price model, which traditional colleges do, they're operating a campus, they've got faculty members on salary, they're very different than from a financial model than a totally online university like APUS is. So when they canceled classes in the spring, many of these colleges that were tuition sensitive said, we'd like to refund you the money, but we can't. Now, most colleges did do a refund, thinking that they could get part of that back with applying for government relief. And I know there was some money that did go back to colleges for that purpose. At the same time, many of the ones that said, we're going to be back, we're going to be safe, we're going to be new, that they couldn't have a fall like the spring. And Bob Zemsky was interviewed after COVID came out. He was interviewed by The Chronicle. I think this was in April and they said, have you changed? Because in your original estimate for the college stress test, you said 10% of all colleges are imminently in trouble. He said, yes. He says, if colleges open up online in the fall and not on campus, he said, I think the number goes from 10% to as high as 30%. And subsequent to that, there've been other predictions. If you look, uh, there's a professor, Scott Galloway at NYU's business school, came out with his own ranking, very, very creative, but I don't think it takes into account certain things like public institution funding. And he has a pretty big list of who's impacted and, and why. And then the Heckinger thing, which published Zemsky. But you can even go back to Clayton Christensen, who came out with the book Disrupting Class, wow, 15 years ago or so. He predicted by 2020, half of all universities would be gone. Now, ignored the fact that there are ways that troubled institutions can kind of linger and and slowly die versus immediately die. I think Professor Zemsky's estimate that they don't open up for the fall, a much bigger number of institutions are in trouble. I, I think I think that's going to happen. I, you know, everybody that I know that follows this, uh, myself included, believe that this fall we'll see announcements for a substantial number of closings. Let's say there's normally five or six schools that close in a year. I've seen one projection that the number of closures that are going to get announced are going to be at least 10 times that. So instead of five, 50. It makes sense, especially with COVID complicating everything with so many small businesses going under. I mean, even just where I live, there's so many different small businesses that in the last few months have closed up for good. And it would make sense that higher education, which is so enrollment sensitive, would also be very susceptible to that. Now, do you see that a lot of the smaller, what I would describe as regional schools are more at risk because a lot of the larger institutions are only getting larger, kind of taking away some of the enrollments of these smaller private colleges, which 100 years ago were wonderful and they've grown up and they fulfilled the need of, of their community. But then almost every small college now, say if it's in Iowa or Arizona or West Virginia, is essentially competing for the same national pool of students, plus a little bit of their local. 
and also competing with all the big schools and competing with online schools. And also just the fact that higher education in general has, has changed in a hundred, greatly changed in a hundred years. I think that the idea of going to a college campus with, let's say, 1,200 students living on campus for all four years and, you know, receiving this intimate one-on-one, or not one-on-one, but small class instruction that taught you the liberal arts and, and how to learn critical thinking and, and how to become a better citizen. And that would get you a job and it wouldn't break the bank on your family's savings and pocketbook. Disappeared a while ago. Going back to the escalating tuitions of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and the fact that we had this peak in the 18-year-olds graduating from college, and that's actually been four years now since we've come down from the peak, and the fact that technology has, has eliminated a lot of middle-class jobs has caused people to be pretty skeptical on the value of paying a premium for a college that doesn't have a brand name and doesn't have a reputation for getting people jobs on Wall Street or whatever their goal may be. That has disappeared. And I would say that it's time that if an institution hasn't found a niche for it to claim to attract students and those students feel confident that when they leave, they either get into the top grad schools or they get hired by big four accounting firm or big three, whatever they're down to now. I think those institutions are in serious trouble and probably deservedly so. Shame on the administration and shame on the board that someone didn't try to say, how do we get back into this game and how how do we do it? And think of the students, think of the mission, think of the students. So there are going to be closures and and the closures aren't going to be the small privates either. They're states. I mean, when you look at the economic impact of COVID, very few states have even reconciled brought the legislature back to reconcile with the fact that their incomes, everybody who was laid off, isn't going to be paying the same level of income tax that it paid last year. If they weren't getting paid wages, they're, they're not going to be paying the same income taxes last year. States that depend on tourism, the restaurants being shut down, the sales tax from restaurants, the sales tax from retail establishments is shut down. Look at all the bankruptcies of the stores and the malls. Bottom line is that the state's budgets are going to be impacted. States are obligated to fund K-12 through education and Medicaid. Beyond that, the higher ed budget, their contribution to higher ed, it's not mandated. If it's not mandated, it's subject to cuts. If it's subject to cuts, you have to raise questions that have been raised in the past, but generally ignored, which is, why do you need multiple research institutions in a state? You know, I grew up in Maryland. We have a lot of universities in Maryland, but a number of the universities going back to the early 1900s were normal schools. Normal schools were where they prepared people to teach. And then they went from a normal school to like a college. And then sure enough, in the whole progress of prestige and all that, most of those normal schools that went to colleges uh, or went to teaching colleges are now universities. I think that when Maryland has to adjust its budget, it'll be interesting to see what happens to those. And, And Maryland's not the only state. Ohio is a state that they're speculating on could be have the most impact to its state institutions under the COVID impact because of taxes. And I think there are greater disparities between their flagship, Ohio State, which is a huge research university, one of the biggest in the country, and then some of the smaller places. So we'll see how that all shakes out. So in the very near future, I could see Arizona State having the largest school of music for Arizona and University of Arizona and NAU going to marching band schools, which to me 
makes sense because otherwise you're just going to, quote, waste money on fields that don't make, that don't have a lot of opportunity. And that's not saying that you can't go into certain fields and it's good for personal development, but you need to have your niche, (laughs) if that makes sense. I thought when the Obama administration came out with their gainful employment rules, which they targeted specifically for profits. And I told the deputy at the Department of Education this, I said, you know, this would be a great rule if it applied to everyone. And a couple of examples that I used were students who go to four-year institutions incur $50,000, $75,000 in debt, and they decided they want to be an art major. Well, they made that decision, and, and they know that life as a struggling artist is a struggle, and you may have to do other jobs to pay the way, particularly because you may never hit it big as an artist, but it's a passion. And same applies to music. Same applies for culinary degrees. My gosh, you could teach yourself to cook. And many people do teach themselves to cook and never go to school. And perhaps through the School of Hard Knocks, you know, get get jobs working in the back of restaurants and eventually work your way up. Or you can go to a culinary school and incur 75000 in debt and maybe never get paid more than $20,000 a year. And, and And so I said, the premise of this is fine, but it should apply to all colleges. Well, we can't do that with all colleges politically. And I just said, well, that's a shame because I agree with you that it could be in a few years or as you look at these budgets, one institution ends up with music and the other ones do band or whatever. And, and uh, that's that's what they're limited to. And I think there are more examples than just music. <laughs> there really are. Dr. Wally Boston, thank you for being here at The Everyday Scholar. Any final thoughts uh, about COVID and school reopenings in fall of 2020? My prediction is that uh, most people are going to be online. The campus experiment's going to fail in most places. And I completely agree. And so today we are talking to Dr. Wally Boston, President Emeritus at American Public University System here at The Everyday Scholar. For more information about our university, visit us at apus.edu. APUS. American Public University System.